Uh, If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 24. This is a great, great passage. We're going to be looking at verse 15 to 51. So you could be praying for me that I'll do this well in the time that we have allotted. You know, I love the fact that the Bible ends with the words, um, these words here. Um, John, after reading all about what's going to happen in end times, after, after writing the book of Revelation, this is his response. He says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That is Jesus. He says he's coming back soon. And then the apostle just says, amen, come Lord Jesus. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Revelation. That's kind of intimidating and traumatizing, and it could be devastating. But after John writes that, he just says, Jesus, come back. He is so excited about the return of Christ. And for many people, when they think about end times and eschatology, of, of course, you've heard that there's premillennialists, amillennialists, and panmillennialists. The premillennialists say Jesus is coming back before the millennium. That's me. The amillennialists say that Jesus is not going to actually reign on earth. He's reigning in heaven right now. And so he'll come back after the millennium. And then there's the panmillennialists. And they just say it's all going to pan out in the end. So what does it matter? <laughs> and uh, the thing that I want you to know is, is when the Apostle Paul, or, or when uh, the, the, the church in Thessalonica was planted, one of the first things that they taught that church, one of the first things that they taught new believers was end times. In fact, some of our doctrine about the rapture comes from Paul's letter to the first Thessalonians talking about end times. And uh, we wish that we would have been there. I'm gonna show you a chart in a minute. And I wish that Paul would have put a chart in the Bible. It would have made things a lot easier for us had he done that. Um, but, but end times, eschatology is incredibly important. And one of the things I love about Matthew 24 is there are some major um, passages in the Bible that talk about the return of Christ. And in a sense, it's spread throughout everything. But you have the book of Revelation. That's this huge communication about end times and how Jesus is going to return. You have the book of Daniel, which talks about uh, this, this same period of time, Jesus coming back. And you have Matthew chapter 24, like the three biggest sections on um, the return of Jesus. And then, of course, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, there are things sprinkled throughout. And so this is an amazing passage. And uh, we just love the fact that Jesus is coming back. And that is what life is all about. And I was thinking about Mary and Martha. You know, just how, how Martha was just so busy, had so much, so many things going on, and Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, just, just listening, just wanting to learn, wanting to be with Jesus. And for us as believers, certainly God has given us a lot to do. There are certainly many things that occupy our attention. But what should be first and foremost in our heart is a love for Jesus and a longing to see him face to face. I want to think about um, as believers, we're supposed to live in light of the return of Christ. And before we jump into everything, I want to just remind us of a few things as we think about this topic. You know, we've read a lot about the suffering that happens in this world and great suffering that will occur. 
And one of the things as we consider that, it's like Jesus helps us understand what to expect in life. And as we read about this incredible tribulation that is going to come on the earth, um, it helps put what we're going through in our life in perspective. Sometimes we shy away from persecution and difficulty and trials. But when you read about things that are going to happen, and, and actually not just in the Bible about the future, but even as we sometimes read about things happening in other places in the world today, it puts the things that we are going through. It's like, if other people can stand in this kind of an environment, I can talk to my neighbor, even though he might get mad at me. And sometimes it just puts what we're going through in perspective. When we read what people go through, it inspires us to be faithful today. It helps us realize that there's going to be a lot of people who compromise. We're going to see that in our day. We're going to have friends. There are, there are people that we went to church with as kids. There are, there are people that we respect that we see fade away from Christ. And it just reminds us that's to be expected. It's going to happen. And if everybody else fades away, I'm not fading away. If in the face of persecution, other people abandon Christ and their love for Christ gets cold, my love's not going to get cold. If I have to stand by myself, I will stand by myself. It reminds us when we read about the Apostle Paul who says that when he was on trial, everybody forsook him and he stood alone. And it just reminds us, yeah, you know what? We may have to do that too. Uh, it reminds us and this is one of the things that I, I just think is so important as we go through this. I'm kind of giving you some application things at the beginning, and then we'll come back to them again at the end. But as Christians, we can fight over so many stupid things. And I just want to throw out some things that are stupid to fight over. Masks, that's a stupid thing to fight over. Um, uh, vaccinations, that is a stupid thing to fight over. There, there are so many things, politics, certain political things, dumb things to fight over. Christians can allow insignificant things to create relational conflict and strife. And when we actually think about what is at stake, what is coming, it reminds us to prioritize things that really matter. We need to be looking for every opportunity that we have to love each other, to encourage each other, to shepherd one another, to admonish one another when we see people wandering into sin or, or when we're struggling to figure out how do we raise disciples, how do we parent our kids, how do we influence people. As we think about the world and where it's going, it reminds us, no, those are the things that matter. And one day when persecution uh, rises, begins to rise in the United States, very possible. You just think about some of the laws that are being passed, some of the executive orders that are being signed right now. And you start thinking about what are things, what are these things going to mean to me as a Christian? What are they going to mean to the Christian church? What are they going to mean to the person I sit next to on Sunday morning? And then we just are rem reminded when I see you, I am going to love you, I am going to encourage you, I am going to support you. And I'm going to take advantage of really having the body of Christ 
be who God has called us to be. And, and I think that um, the whole pan-millennialist thing, hey, I guess it's stupid to fight too much about how end times are going to work out, um, depending on how, the, you know, there's people that have so much personal hostility over those things. And I guess to some degree, that can be dumb, not, not that we shouldn't work really hard to know what God says, but it is, it is a, a disaster when Christians don't think about end times. There is a reason that Jesus prioritized it. There's a reason it's prioritized in Scripture. So um, let's jump into this, and we have a lot of verses, and I'm going to tell you five things this morning that are really important. And I'm not just going to tell you we're going to read the Bible this morning. We're going to see these things. But I just want you to know that there is a great tribulation coming on the whole world. It is coming, and it is a great tribulation. The second coming of Christ, <laughs> this is an encouragement to you. This is a second thing. You're not going to miss it. You don't have to worry that it happened or that it might happen and you might not realize that it happened. Now, from a spiritual perspective, you could miss it. But when Jesus comes back, whether you're his child and you, in a sense, from a theological perspective, make it, there's people that theologically are going to miss it. Relationally, they're going to miss it. But nobody's not going to know what happened. And so that's an encouragement. That's number two. The third thing is that when Jesus comes back, he is coming back as a victorious conqueror. And that has a huge impact on how we see struggles that we face. The birds are cheering. They like this. The fourth thing and this is, this is huge. We need to always be ready because we have no idea, idea when this day is coming. And that's actually, that's a very important thing that we'll spend some time on. And that being ready for the return of Christ means that you live in a wise and in a faithful way. Does that sound like a lot of things to cover? We, we better go quick, huh? So just to put all this um, in context, I want to show you a chart. And uh, I, I should have made a second chart to show the view of other people, but I'll just try to explain the way other people view this. Um, this is a chart that I've made. And I think that when, well, I didn't, I'm not the first one to have made this. I did happen to make this chart, but I saw it somewhere. Um, one of the things that I think is important as we approach eschatology and things in the future and prophecy is we need to be careful to really take God's word for what it says. You know, I was thinking about Daniel. Uh, he writes about a lot of end time things. But one of the things is Jeremiah was a prophet who wrote in Daniel's day. And he actually talked about that Israel was going to be exiled. And he gave them a specific number. He said, you're going to be exiled for 70 years. And so Daniel was one of the people that got carried out of Israel into Babylon. And actually, as he starts to write about end times, Daniel says, oh, I noticed. Jeremiah said we were going to be taken out for 70 years. 70 years is up. It's time for us to go back. And what does Daniel start doing? He starts praying that God would forgive the nation. He confesses on behalf of the nation and prays that God would take them back. And guess what happens? They go back when they were supposed to go back. And so God said 70 years, and 70 years meant 70 years. And so we need to, we need to, be care we need to take those things seriously 
but we also need to approach eschatology with a, with a sense of humility. One of the things that I did this week is I tried to find the best writers that wrote with an opposing view to mine and then to read what they wrote and to really evaluate it and think about it. And I just want you to know there are very, there are challenging issues. I can see why some people kind of take things the way they take them. And I'll just explain to you this morning briefly why I don't take it that way as we read through Matthew 24. So, but here's the, here's the way that we see this. As God was working, he created the world. That's the circle. He was working through the nation of Israel. And then Jesus came and the, and the Jews rejected Jesus and Israel was set to the side. Now, people have calculated from the date of Daniel and these things that he talked about, and this is one of the things is that you can work that out to right around the time that Jesus came the first time. And it is interesting that in Babylon, where Daniel was, right, some people were going, oh, it's the time. They were waiting and watching for the time of Jesus. And who showed up at Jesus' birth? People from that area where Daniel was. They figured it out. They calculated some things. They were looking for a star, and they showed up, the wise men, right? So, so that happens. That's when Jesus comes. And then you have the church age, which is kind of a mystery. Um, it wasn't clear in the Old Testament that God was going to work. And now we read back, and we see all these things, and they make so much sense. But they, that was not apparent um, beforehand. And so we're now in the church age, and, and that little arrow says, you're here. And that's because the rapture hasn't happened yet, or only like 10% of us would be here. <laughs> you guys are so sharp. That's because religion doesn't save people. No, no, everybody here, I'm sure you guys all would be absent, but some people who didn't show up, that's the thing, the ones who didn't show up today, they, they, they might come next week. So you're here. The rapture happens. Now, there's a lot of debate around the rapture. And some people say there is no rapture. The rapture is actually the second coming of Christ. Some people say the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some people say that the rapture is only for really faithful Christians and unfaithful Christians will be left. Um, so I'm not going to get into all that, but just to tell you, all the Christians go, and they go at the beginning. And then there's a seven-year tribulation. That's the book of Revelation, chapter 4 through 19, talks about the tribulation. Chapter 20 talks about the second coming of Christ. Chapter 21 and 22 talk about, um, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 20 talks about the millennium, the earthly reign of Christ. 21 and 22 talk about eternity. Now, the other view that people have, so for me, I would say Matthew 24 covers from the time Jesus was speaking, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 years. And so that's what we covered a couple weeks ago. And then he talks about what's going to happen through the tribulation period. And I think that that's what's being discussed in Matthew chapter 24. People who take a different view say everything in Revelation and everything in Matthew 24 was done in 70 A.D., so none of that stuff other than like the, the, the second coming of Christ and those, and, and those kinds of things, that, that's all that's left. So you could take where I put on this chart to Revelation 20 and Matthew 24, and you could just squeeze that all back before the first R on Revelation 1, 1 through 3. So that's the other view.
And uh, so from that perspective, we need to be humble and gracious as people approach these things because honestly, these things are challenging. There are some things people struggle to interpret not because it's hard to understand, but because they don't like what it says. And then there's other people who struggle to interpret things because as they study it, it's kind of challenging. And I think that this is one of those issues. So shall we jump in and see where the Lord is going to take us this morning? So I'm just going to go right to chapter five, uh, verse 15 of Matthew 24. There is a great tribulation coming. There is a great tribulation coming, and it's coming on the whole world. So let's just read verse 15 through 22. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take his what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight not, may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation, if you read some of the sections of Jan Daniel, but I would say mainly if you read the book of Revelation, that makes sense that this is radical. There are earthquakes that move every mountain on earth. There are plagues that kill a third of mankind, that kill a third of every fish in the sea, that destroy a third of every ship. Um, there's tw another 25% of the earth's population is wiped out. Things become poisoned. People are destroyed with incredible heat. There's all kinds of just radical things happening on earth. And when you read there's such tribulation coming on earth that there never has been and there never will be, and if God didn't cut it short, no one would survive. When you read the book of Revelation, you just go, yeah, that's what this is talking about. And I just want you to know that part of why I say these things are future, there are many reasons, but part of why I say these things are future are because that hasn't happened yet. And I'm not saying that in 70 AD things were not terrible, but I just want you to know that if 70 AD would have continued and the Romans were continuing to destroy Israel, um, nobody in China would have died. We're going to read some things later in this passage that says every nation on earth is going to mourn. While Israel was being destroyed in 70 AD, nobody in China knew or cared. And so these things didn't happen then they are going to happen in the future. And here's one of the things that I would just say, like, people read this. There's a couple things I'm going to point out that, are, that kind of motivate people to say this happened in 70 AD. And one is just, when you read this description in verse um, 
uh, verse 17 and verse 16 where it says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloth, cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant in those days, like when you read that, that actually makes really good sense as happening in 70 AD. When the Romans are coming and they're surrounding the, the, the city, it's like, man, take off and run because these things are going to happen and you need to get out and don't waste any time. Just get out of there. Like that kind of makes sense for 70 AD. And then you think to yourself, with all the things that are going to be happening in the book of Revelation, does it make sense for them to run out of town? Like this, this, this trauma is happening in the whole world. And so as I think about that, yeah, okay, I get it. I get why people would think that or say that. But I'm not living in Jerusalem during this period. And it is possible, very possible, that it would make sense if you were there in that time to flee to the hills and to not go down and get your cloak. So when I compare that with every nation on earth is going to mourn and nothing like this has ever happened in the world, I just go, well, I'm not there. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know what these other words mean. And so for me, that I prioritize that. That's one of the things that I shift. Now, as I think about this, this does actually have really powerful application for you and I, and I think it's really good for us to read the book of Revelation. Do you ever sense pressure and persecution like you think about as a kid going to school, sitting in your science class, did you ever feel like, man, I can't stand for Christ? When you think about the way our culture approaches uh, the trans transgender issue, homosexuality issues, all kinds of issues, do you ever feel this pressure, like I just need to be quiet and I can't say anything? Because it might cost me my job or I might suffer. And, and I just think about when you think about what's going to happen and you think about what believers are going to face, it actually puts these struggles and challenges that we're facing right now in perspective, they are small. And people are going to pay a great price, actually a great price that you and I, were we living in that day, should be willing to face. If people stood up here and said, reject Christ, or we're throwing you into a boiling pot of oil, uh, reject Christ, or we are going to put you on a pile of wood and light you on fire in front of your family. Um, reject Christ, or we're going to decapitate you. That happens in the world. And if that were to happen to you or to me, we should be willing, happily willing, to endure that. That's what God calls us to do. And yet we shrink back. We don't even invite our neighbors to church because we think, well, they probably won't say anything, but they might have a bad thought about me afterwards. And so this great tribulation puts life in perspective. It, it makes me think about um, Julianne when she was a kid growing up. So Julianne is my second daughter. She's a really tough daughter. She climbed Mount, climbed Mount Whitney with me. She is an amazingly brave individual. But she was not always like that in her life. I remember as a little kid, she really hadn't suffered. We were good parents. We took care of her. We didn't let her suffer. We, we tried to care for our kids. And I, I remember, like, we had such trauma taking her to the dentist. I mean, the idea of, like, 
like there was times she was going to get a shot and the dentist would walk in and she would see this needle and she would freak out and they'd send us home. Like we made four trips to the dentist's office. I remember they put, you know, they put that bubblegum flavored fluoride on her teeth. And uh, so they put those little things in her mouth and she would sit in the chair and cry. Ah! Like, like somebody put battery acid in her mouth. I'm like, this is fluoride that tastes like bubblegum. And she's having this emotional distress. And we just decided that we were going to teach our daughter to toughen up. I, I just realized in her life, she needs to learn to toughen up. But at the same time, there was this other little kid her age in our church who had been through like eight or nine incredibly painful su- surgeries, who had all kinds of really serious health problems, was going through just major things. And I'm just thinking about this contrast. I got a six-year-old who's crying over fluoride and this other kid that bravely faces these major surgeries. And one of the things that we need to remember is that, you know, contrast is important, but, you know, even, you know, that was, the fluoride was the worst thing Julianne had ever faced in her life, so that was hard for her. But these things being in perspective, they, they help us. And so for us, it's important for us to know these things Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. We need to be willing to do that. Here's the second point is this, that nobody's going to miss the second coming of Christ. Um, and, and that's one of the things is that, so, so the view, the other view of the different from mind is that Jesus did come in the first century. He did come in 70 AD, but he came in judgment. So just that was his judgment. And so him coming on clouds, cloud represents judgment, um, you know, uh, stars, the, the sun and moon being darkened and all those things that just represents political turmoil and all those kinds of things. So it's not really those things. It just re- represents turmoil. When it says Jesus is coming on the clouds, that the clouds, that just represents judgment. And so Jesus did come. He came in their lifetime and that it was just the judgment that this was never saying Jesus was physically going to return. So they believe Jesus still is physically going to come back, but that's what they do with this. And that for me, as I read this, that is not what I do with this. Matthew 24, 23 says, then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's this powerful, deluding influence which is talked about in 1 Thessalonians and which when you read the book of Revelation, you see the Antichrist doing these real miracles that's del- that are deceiving miracles. Verse 25, see I have told you beforehand So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now they take that to just mean lightning is a representation of judgment. But I'm just going to tell you when I read this, it's just saying when you're standing outside and you see lightning and it goes all the way across the sky, nobody misses it. And that is what is being said here is Jesus is going to come back and nobody's going to miss it. Acts chapter 1 verse 9, when he had seen these things, this is Jesus ascending into heaven. When, 
when, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Those are angels. And he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming back physically on the clouds. And I don't know exactly how this works, but this is what I know from this passage. No one's going to miss it. You don't have to wonder, did Jesus come back? And I'm just not sure. Uh, was it, did he come in judgment? Did he, you know, Jesus is coming back physically and no one will miss it. And uh, this is one of the things, this is just a picture of the Mount, Mount of Olives, and I showed this to you. But as Jesus is giving this, this, uh, this sermon, he's sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple of Jerusalem. And just so you know, that's where Jesus is coming back, on the Mount of Olives, right below where it says that. I thought about when I visited Israel I thought about this thought popped into my head. Man, I should just sell my house and buy a house over here somewhere because I think I'd actually like to be standing right here and see him come back and see his feet hit that mountain. Now, there's going to be lots of trauma, so maybe I'm going to need to run to the hills when that happens. But um, I want to see that. I think about what a privilege to live in that geographical location where this is going to happen. But I just want you to know that Jesus is coming back, and you're not going to miss it when he does, but you better be ready for it. And the people in your life better be ready for it. Well, you should pray for them, but they need to be worried that they're ready for it. Here's a third thing, that Jesus is coming as a conquering warrior. You know, when Pilate was looking at Jesus and as they were getting ready to crucify him, Pilate's like really nervous and he's really shooken up and his wife has come to him and said, this is an innocent man. I, ha I had a dream. He's an innocent man. Don't do anything to him. And, and Pilate's starting to panic and, and he just says, hey, I'm going to wash my hands of this. Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve to die, but you guys do whatever you want. He's trying to like shift the blame. But one of the things that Jesus says to him is, is he just says, if my kingdom were of this world and right now my servants would come and fight, but it's not. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He was a humble servant. He died for people. His, his enemies were victorious, but not really victorious. But he went to the cross, and that was God's plan that he would die for mankind. But the next time Jesus comes back, he's not going to be a suffering servant. He is going to tr crush and destroy and kill his enemies. Jesus himself will be the one who renders judgment. And that's one of the things we learn about the, the, this whole, like, um, the destruction of Jerusalem. There are many people who, when they think about Jesus, they just go, oh, no, Jesus is loving. He doesn't judge anybody. He doesn't punish anyone. No, Jesus is going to come on a white horse, and he is going to exterminate his enemies. Uh, God's grace and God's love and Jesus' love is that he died on the cross and he made a way for people to be saved. That was his love to say, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done wrong. I will forgive you. If you come to me, I will strengthen you. Your standing before God, your, your ability to get into heaven has nothing to do with you or your strength or your ability to be a good person. You can be a terrible person but I love you and I died for you. 
I was punished for your sins. You will get the credit for my righteous life. Your standing before God will be based on me. You don't have to worry about being strong enough. I was strong enough for you. But that means that you come to Christ in humble repentance and by faith trust the gift that he gave. That's Jesus' love. It is not Jesus' love that everybody's okay. You can live a life of rebellion and do whatever you want and everybody's going to be okay. That is not Jesus' love. Jesus' love is not that every way makes it, but that he made a way to make it. And anybody who shakes their fist in Jesus' face, uh, they're going to miss that loving Savior. And they are going to see the God who will express and display the fury and the anger and the wrath of God. And that's what we are going to see here. And it just says this. Jesus coming as a conquering warrior. You just read Revelation. I remember there was a guy summarizing Revelation. And he just said, this is not a bloody book. <laughs> I just like, did you read it? It talks about blood like at the bridles of horses. You know, that, that valley, you know, between the Mount of Olives and, and the nation of Israel, that whole thing's going to be full of people's blood. They're going to die. This is what it says in Matthew 24, 28. Wherever the corpse is, and when you, when you read the book of Revelation, you could find this where it's talking about this. The vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I don't think that's political things. I think that means the moon's going to be darkened, and I think that means stars are going to fall. And then it says this, then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So as he comes, all the tribes of the earth are mourning because he's coming to judge these people who have rebelled against him and the angels are gonna gather up his children, the elect from everywhere. They're gonna be cared for, they're gonna be protected, but the enemies will be destroyed. Now the people who view this as already happening, they define the tribes of, uh, uh, the, tribes of the earth as the tribes of the land and they say that that doesn't refer to the unbelievers necessarily, but that refers to Israel. So that's not the whole world mourning. That's Israel mourning because they rejected Jesus, and that's what happened in 70 AD. That's not what I get from this. I get from this that God's gathering his people, which I believe is Israel brought to repentance, and that the tribes of the earth are all the nations that have opposed Israel and who have shaken their fist against God's face. Now, here's the significant thing for you and I in this. Jesus is coming back as a victor, and we're on his side. We are 
not that we'll necessarily be there at a second coming. If we're raptured, if I understand that correctly, we'll be in heaven. But this is just true of life. We are on the winning side. We are with Jesus. And sometimes it feels like we're losing. Sometimes it seems like other people are powerful enough to hurt us, that anti-God people who hate Christians can harm you. And I just want you to know that's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt. When Nebuchadnezzar, who drugged them out of Israel and took them there and said, I'm going to throw you into the furnace, he seemed powerful. And they seemed weak. And it wasn't just temporary. Like, like they're, 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 they've been sensing that. They've been feeling that. Somebody who controls what they eat and where they live and what they do. And then he made this big fire and he tells these, these, uh, these guards that he has, go grab them and throw them into the fire. And as these guards grab them and drag them over to the furnace and as they're getting ready to hurl them in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are feeling like, it seems like we're losing here. Well, we're getting beat up. We are not in control. We don't have any power. Nebuchadnezzar has all the power. And then they get thrown into the furnace. And in that moment, instead of being burned up and dying, Jesus shows up. And they're not burned up. And they're not hurt. And in fact, the guards who threw them in, they die. And then they, Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, <laughs> come on out. Okay, everybody should worship that God. And one of the things as we think about Jesus coming back in victory, we're on Jesus' side. It may, it may feel like you are losing, but if you are a believer, you are never losing. Jesus wins, and you win because you're with Jesus. Here's the fourth thing that we see in verse 32. We need to always be ready because nobody knows the day or hour. And this is significantly important for believers for many reasons. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes tender and puts out its leaves, and you know that summer is near, so also when you see these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. These things that Jesus has said, every, everybody's like, oh, there's, there's a new war. And it said there would be rumors of wars. And oh, there's this earthquake. And if you calculate it out, there's more earthquakes now than there used to be. And, and all these things about all the stuff that Jesus is talking about in, in this section. But the thing to remember is, yes, those things have always happened. And they're going to be increasing. And they're going to happen more. And that doesn't mean, okay, that means that in three years, Jesus is coming back. You know, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. But as these things happen in our culture, as we see these shifts, I mean, they're even talking about having taxation be global. Like, have you noticed that recently in the news? Like, they're, they're like, oh, if we raise taxes on businesses in the United States, they're going to leave. So let's get everybody in every country to raise taxes so that any business that wants to leave the United States will have nowhere to go. And you start thinking about, wow, this is like this one world system coming. And as we see that stuff, okay, great. Um, okay, that, that's happening. D does that mean we should start like calculating things out? No, but as we see these things happen, it just reminds us, these are the things that God says is going to happen. This is a reminder. No, all these things are happening according to plan, and it just reminds us that Jesus is coming back, and he could have come back yesterday. He could come back. I mean, Je like the time is near. And then this is um, one of the things in that, that people say, no, this, we have to reinterpret all the stuff we've been talking about. We have to reinterpret it to have happened in 70 AD. Here's why. 
in verse 34, it says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. This generation. So then the question is, what is this generation? Is he saying, is Jesus saying, you disciples who are hearing me say this, you will not pass away until all these things happen? That's the way people take this, and they go, okay, so we have to reinterpret everything to have happened because Jesus said it would happen in their lifetime. Or is this generation, meaning the generation that is there, when all these things start happening, they will not pass away before Jesus comes back. So during the tribulation, that's a seven-year period, and it's going to happen quick, and that generation that is there during the tribulation period, that generation will not pass away. It will happen in their lifetime. It's not going to drag out forever. So I take the second view that this generation is the people that are there when this is happening. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then this is one of the most, for me personally, theologically challenging verses in the Bible. But this is it right here. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So here's the point. Nobody knows when this is going to happen. Jesus says uh, words that are hard to figure out. But he says nobody knows except God. The angels don't know. You don't know. I don't even know. He's the son. I don't even know. And so I just want to ask, who writes a book and says, I read the Bible, and let me tell you the day Jesus is coming back. I calculated this, and, and this thing was this person who did this, and, and then, you know, this, this person, this is the Antichrist, and he appeared at this time, so Jesus is coming back. What Christian writes a book and starts calculating days? So that's, that's an insane individual. And then what I think is, um, forgive me if this applies to any of you. I've been as insane too, but I want to say anybody who, who <laughs> believes that stuff, you are all so insane. Okay, and I've been insane about things too, but I just say come to your senses. Um, don't buy into that kind of stuff. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. Get away from people who start picking dates. Like don't read their stuff. Go find somebody else to study. And, uh, but nobody knows. Now, here's the reason this is challenging. I'm, I'm going to go quick right now. Jesus is God, right? And when Jesus came to this earth, he did not give up his deity. Jesus is fully God. Colossians 2.9, in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. That means that Jesus has all the attributes of God. He gave up none of them. What's one of the attributes of God? He's omniscient. He knows everything. So how can Jesus say, I don't know? So that's a mystery. We have to think about that. Here's another thing we know is that when Jesus became a man, he took on humanity and he lived life as a man. This is not the only challenging passage. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus grew in wisdom. So he learned things. In stature, he grew physically. That's not as hard for us. And in favor with God and men. How does Jesus, as a man, grow in favor with God? There's this mysterious thing. We know Jesus gave up none of his attributes. 
but we know that here he says, I don't know, and he lived and experienced life as a man. And so what that means is Jesus was omniscient, but he chose not to know. One of the ways that people theologically say this, and this is not a phrase from the Bible, but they say that Jesus, um, that v- Jesus gave up the independent exercise of his divinity, and he exercised it at God's will. So when God says, don't know, Jesus chose not to know. So in his deity, he knew, but in his humanity, he didn't know. So that's a mystery. It's a challenge, but it's careful that we have to be careful in how we approach that, that we don't change the divinity of Jesus about the person of Christ. We can't do that. So that's a large discussion for another day, but it's important. And the point is, nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. Okay, let's look at verse 37. For as we're in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Noah's preaching. He's telling them that God's judgment is coming. They just disregarded it. They lived life like everything was fine. What's happening in our day? We have unbelievers that that they refuse to heed the warning from God. People who live life by their own standards, they do whatever they think. They don't care what God says. They just care what they want. And they're just eating and drinking and they're going, hey, Jesus didn't come back yesterday and I woke up and I did everything. My life's going fine. And that's what everybody was doing in the days of Noah before the flood. And then the flood came and they were all swept away. And Jesus is just saying when he comes back, there's going to be a ton of people that are not ready, that think everything's fine. They think they're fine. They think they're winning, but they're not. And then it goes on and it says this, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Um, we need to be ready at all times. One will be taken, one left. That is not talking about the rapture. That is just saying there's two people one knows the Lord, they're going to be okay. There's one that doesn't know the Lord, they're going to be taken in God's wrath and in God's judgment. That's the comparison with Noah. You know, we need to be ready. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Now, some people may see the rapture, but I just got to tell you, I remember sitting next to my dad in his bed as he was dying. We knew that he had days left. He was afraid to die. We were talking about that, and one of the things I told him is, is I'm healthy. He, he within days, is going to start having that death rattle, and I'm going to watch him breathe and just count his last hours. And one of the things I told him while he was conscious is I just said, Dad, I might die before you. I could die on my way home today. God could decide my time is up. I could die in my sleep tonight. It's not just the return of Christ. Nobody knows their last day. Everybody needs to be ready all the time. And that should result in us 
living faithfully and wisely. And we're going to close with this verse right here. Matthew 24, 45, this section. Who then is faithful, a faithful, wise servant, whom his master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. So, Faithful and wise servants do the things that God calls us to do. And he's saying giving the other servants their food. That's caring for brothers and sisters in Christ. It is ministering to people. It is loving people. It is encouraging people. Uh, Verse 48. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on that day he does not expect, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Chapter 23, the Pharisees were hypocrites and God threw them into hell. He will put them with the hypocrites in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That evil slave is not an unfaithful believer. That is a non-believer. And this is the thing a lot of people say, oh, you can't expect believers to live like, un- like unbelievers to live like believers. Well, God does. God doesn't say, oh, you say you'll be a Christian. Well, then now you're accountable to me. Oh, you, you reject me. You deny my existence. Well, then it's kind of free for you. Do whatever you want, whatever you believe. God will be worshiped by everybody. And if you deny Jesus, it, it lowers your responsibility and your accountable, accountability to him by nothing. And people who harden their heart against God, whether they think they believe in God or not, it says here, will be cut into pieces and thrown with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. We need to live a faithful life. We need to have a heart for unbelievers. They have a devastating future. It is is unthinkable what is happening, going to happen to people who don't know the Lord. And that should give us a sense of urgency. We have kids who grow up in church and learn to be good people, but don't have a relationship with Christ. And the church is not here to help people be better. It's to here to help people know who God is and then live that out. Your neighbors, man, we're worried about whether or not they like us if we invite them to church. If they don't know Christ, they are headed for a devastating future, and that should motivate us to be faithful. And the blessing is we don't have to make anybody be a Christian. It's just our job to faithfully witness, and we pray that God will convict them, that he will give them a sense of dread, that he would help them to see the offer of forgiveness and want it and want to embrace it. And you and I are supposed to live spiritually faithful lives so that people see what it means to be a Christian, the blessing that comes from obedience. Instead of Christians who demonstrate in their life that sin is more attractive them pleasing the Lord. That is not what God wants from us. He wants us to live diligent, faithful lives, not so that we can make it into heaven. Jesus did that for us already. But just as an expression of love and as a desire to be a picture to the world of who Jesus is. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Help us to have an effective ministry in reaching people. 
Thank you that you have given us your word, Lord, that you love us, that we are not trying to be good enough. You did that for us. But Lord, help us to be faithful and to reach the lost and to have a sense of urgency in our discipleship of brothers and sisters in Christ, people in the church, our kids. And Lord, help us to love each other and not fight over dumb things in your name.